everyone. Welcome to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosleib. And my name is Jose Sanchez. And today we have Professor Fiona Chan on the podcast to talk with us about corporate crime, routine activity theory, and guardianship. Fiona Chan is a former public accountant and current assistant professor of criminal justice at Indiana University Bloomington. She received her PhD from the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University 2022. Her research interests concentrate on various forms of white collar and corporate crime, including financial fraud, bribery, and corruption and the intersection of technology and crime. Fiona's dissertation was funded by the National Institute of Justice, and she has published in Criminology, Crime Law and Social Change, and Trends in Organized Crime, among other places. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Fiona. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. All right. So today we are going to talk with Fiona about routine activity theory, corporate crime, and then a paper that combines these two ideas called When Guardians Become Offenders, Understanding Guardian Capabilities Through the Lens of Corporate Crime. And then time permitting, we'll wrap up with a question on interdisciplinary research. So Jose, why don't you kick us off? Okay. So before we really get started on talking about like your paper and other substantive topics, we want to ask a question. We usually reserve this question for our reflection series, but when we were kind of prepping for this episode, we noticed that your background, like, so you, so you did your undergraduate degree and your master's in accountancy. And like I mentioned in your introduction, you were an accountant before you became a criminologist. Yes. And so we really wanted to ask because we're curious what made you switch careers and how did you go from a public accountant to becoming a criminologist? Yeah, I had a little bit of an odd career path, right? <laughs> that shows you how you can plan everything in your life and nothing really turns out. <laughs> but yeah, when I was a public accountant, you know, I was exposed to a lot of fraud cases, so financial fraud cases. And eventually I started asking questions about, you know, these offenders have so much to lose. Why do they risk it all? Right. And then I kind of did my own research into criminological theories and a whole host of criminological theories that I haven't been exposed to as an accountant. So I was very interested in that. And I randomly reached out to a professor at Cincinnati. I was in Ohio at the time and asked about that and asked about all these, you know, theories. And that's really what got me thinking. We as accountants and as criminologists, we're both trying to solve the same problem. But it turns out that we never really talk to each other. Accountants know nothing about criminological theories, and a lot of criminologists don't know anything about accounting structures or financial structures. And so I thought I would be the perfect person to kind of bridge that gap. Right? Yeah, it's so cool, especially with you know what we're talking about today. I was just really interested because I feel like it is very unusual to see someone go from being an accountant to <laughs> going back to school, getting degrees and becoming a criminologist. So it's just really neat that you have kind of that background experience that I'm sure really helps your research. Right. Um, yeah. All right. So speaking of theory, one of our core topics today is based in theory. And we want to start off like super broadly, just to give people who aren't familiar with this kind of an idea of what we're talking about. 
So in brief, can you tell us about like traditional routine activity theory and kind of its core concepts? Sure. So routine activity theory is a victimization theory, right? Posited by Cohen and Felsen in 1979. And it was aimed to explain the changes in crime trends with the changes of people's day-to-day routine activities, right? And there is a central premise to this theory, which states that in order for a crime event to occur, three things need to happen, right? There needs to be a motivated offender, there needs to be a suitable target, and there needs to be an absence of a capable guardians. And all these things need to converge in time and space for a crime to happen, right? And this whole idea of routine activities theories have, you know, inspired a whole area of situational crime prevention, because as posited by Cohen and Felsen, that the lack of any one of these elements is sufficient to prevent a successful completion of a crime, right? Right. I will say this is one of my favorite theories. I love routine activity theory, and I love that the initials are RAT, so I just call it the RAT. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you used it for your comps, right? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Yeah. But so we want to get into this like idea of guardianship. And so first, we can want to start off kind of, you know, basic, but how was guardianship defined by Cohen and Felsen? Okay, I think the initial definition by Cohen and Felsen was rather broad. They called it supervision that may prevent crime. So that's that's a rather broad definition, right? But because this conceptualization is so broad, it's popularly thought of as like a general theory that applies to most crime, right? But that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Is guardian an individual, like a manager or employee guarding the merchandises of a store? Or is a guardian more like an object, like a CCTV or a padlock, right? Or is it a process that makes access to the target more difficult, right? Can we define guardianship by their goals? Are guardians protecting themselves or another person or or target? Can guardianship be unintentional, right? How about defining guardians who are by who or what they're guarding? There's a whole literature in out there that talks about controllers, right? Who are basically guardians of each of the routine activity elements we talked about. So basically another triangle over the original crime triangle where the targets are controlled by guardians, the offenders are controlled by handlers, and then the locations are controlled by place managers. Sounds complicated. Yeah. (laughs) And so it really sounds like one of your bigger issues with this is that what exactly a guardian is seems to be very vague and not very, I guess, well-defined by Cohen and Felsen. Right. All right. So speaking of that, you know, most of my schooling on routine activity theory is really focused on this idea of the presence of a guardian, which Mm -hmm. you mentioned when you were defining the traditional theory. So for example, and you just listed out some of these, but a police officer on the street or a surveillance sign in our yard, or even a camera, you know, even if it's not plugged in, just the presence of a camera. And so this is consistent with routine activity theory, but 
in your paper that we're going to talk about, you know, you argue that it's not enough, basically. And so what does this focus on the presence of a guardian neglect to consider? So this, to me, first of all, we got to step back a little bit, right? And think a little bit about the role of guardianship as described by Cohen and Felsen, right? Guardians are there to kind of deter a motivated offender, right? So in other words, they're there to change a potential offender's risk calculation, risk assessment. So there is a rational choice foundation to routine activities theories, right? But we know that risk calculation is not static. It's kind of dynamic. It can change over time, right? So what if I were a burglar and I was initially deterred by this surveillance camera or a watchful neighbor, right? But after watching this home for a while, I realized that, well, the camera's not always turned on, like you said, right? And the neighbor doesn't seem like the type who might intervene. Then maybe my risk calculation has changed based on my perception on how credible the threat is and how capable that guardianship structure is. So by focusing on the presence, we neglected to consider the offender's perception on how capable the guardian is and how credible that risk is. Yeah, that idea is really, really interesting to me. And I think I read that section of your paper a couple of times because I just found it really interesting. And so I was thinking about this, you know, thinking about the teenager who wants to beat someone up at school or so says, let's go outside after school or someone who wants to steal clothes. Like one of my questions is, do you think this notion of capability or effectability, I'm blanking on the word you used, but of a guardian to prevent crime really matters for all types of crimes? Or would this idea be more important for specific types of crimes? I think in my paper, I kind of show that it's, it's rather important for corporate crime. The example I gave is on burglary. So street crime, and I, I think it has more general utility than just several types of crime. Just because when we talk about routine activities theories, we always draw this triangle, right? And we put target guardians, offender on the triangle. Maybe it's because there's lack of space and we can only write so much. <laughs> but we also forgot about the adjectives that come with targets, you know, a suitable target, right? And then guardians, a capable guardians, right? So when we know that crime is, you know, everything in criminal justice is, is so difficult to measure. So we often measure one part of it. We measure you know, guardians. Is there a guardian or is there not a guardian, right? But we forgot about measuring the capable part of capability, right? Yeah. I guess maybe I was more going to like those spur of the moment crimes, you know, that happen without perhaps doing this whole reflection or decision-making process and just trying to figure out if this notion of capability would apply to those as well, or if just because of emotion and whatever else it maybe wouldn't apply to as, you know, much of a degree as something that's more planned out or not necessarily planned, mm -hmm. but thought through more. That's yeah. an interesting thought, because yeah. if you don't have the time to make those risk calculations, can you assess, properly assess how capable the guardian is, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That would be an interesting collaboration project. Right. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, I had a similar question 
to, you know, as you were talking about it, I was like, well, how often do people like sit there and like scope out houses and not? But I also think, like thinking back, like a lot of people don't stray that far, right? From like places that they're comfortable from when they're committing crime. And so it might, I don't know, I think in some cases it might seem like it's a spur of the moment, but if you know, like that area fairly well, you Mm -hmm. kind of start to develop a sense as to what is actually happening, right? Like, like I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, there was always this liquor store, like two blocks away that had a security camera. But after a little while, we all basically knew that that camera was bunk, like it wasn't plugged into anything. So at that point, we all kind of knew that, well, the camera's not actually doing anything. So, yeah, but I think it would make for a great, I really do. We might have to edit this out because we don't want people stealing our idea now. Uh, <laughs> I think we just came up with a paper. And also you just admitted <laughs> to like crime. So <laughs> no, I did not. I, did not. No, I said we knew the camera didn't work. I didn't say anything came back. Okay. That's funny. Um, but so I very much plead the fit here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but also want to think about situations where offenders, like they probably weren't offenders. They weren't planning on committing a crime or anything, but an opportunity arises. And sometimes maybe lax guardianship creates that opportunity, right? What do they say about like kidnappings, right? Then they say something about kidnappings usually are perpetrated by people you know, right? Yeah. And so you see an opportunity and you know the family or you know the children or whatnot, like, you know, their situation and it's easier, like in your mind, like you're more familiar, the risk calculation is lower because you're more familiar, right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to say that our episode with Joan Reed on human trafficking Mm kind of touched on that a little bit, but okay. So I think we've set up a good foundation to start moving into your paper. Okay. And so we've, actually had a couple episodes related to white collar and corporate crime. We had an episode with Sally Simpson, Vim Heisman, and Jared Joseph. And based on those episodes, in this particular case, the one with that we did with Sally Simpson, we know that there's like this definitional debate regarding how to define white collar crime. And like, I mean, you could really say that about criminology in general, um, our definitional debates. (laughs) But given our focus today on corporate crime, How do you define corporate crime and how does it maybe differ from white collar crime? Let me just start by saying that I am kind of sick of this definition. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It is a problem, but it also, I've also adopted the approach where I just say, this is the crime I'm going to look at and, you know, follow through from there. So the way I define corporate crime in the paper is it's broader and corporate crime has been defined in many different ways, but I see it as a kind of subcategory of white collar crime because white collar crime is such a broad umbrella. In corporate crime, we're talking about, and I adopted Braithwaite's definition and he said corporate crime is the conduct of a corporation or of employees acting on behalf of a corporation, which is prescribed and punishable by law. So corporate crimes include 
really criminal law, civil law, administrative law. Corporations are considered as legal persons in the eyes of the law. And so both corporations and their representatives can be punished. But he kind of focused on like violations that benefits the organization, benefits the corporation rather than benefiting the individuals. And you mentioned this a little bit, but can you give us more specifics about what types of crime would fall under corporate crime? Yeah. So if you think about corporate crime, you might think about antitrust. You might think about like what we call earnings management or what the layperson would call, you know, cooking the books, right? Financial Mm -hmm. reporting fraud. You might think about foreign vibrant corruption. You might think about even embezzlement and all those would fall under corporate crime. Cool. And so our focus on, or your focus, I guess, in this paper was really on financial fraud, which you mentioned that, you know, a lot of the corporate crime literature has focused on very specific types of corporate crime with very little consideration toward financial fraud. And so I'm just, you know, wondering why you think so little research has been aimed toward financial fraud. Is it more difficult to study than other types of corporate crime, which seem very difficult to study in and of itself? Or is there some other reason? That's a good question. And it's a good question that I ask myself all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is something that's important to me. And it's of my interest. And I'm always wondering, why does no one else care? (laughs) But I do think that there are several challenges to studying corporate and especially financial crime. One is the financial system in this country in particular, it's quite complex. So my background has kind of helped me in that area, but having to learn that it's a challenge. Another challenge is its data availability. So financial crime and corporate crime, we often suffer from the lack of data. And that's Because it is one of the crime types that are influenced a lot by political changes and regime changes. And you can see kind of like an increase and decrease in enforcement very drastically moving from one administration to another. And so you'll see correspondingly an increase and decrease in data and not very consistent data. That's hard to then study changes too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, I think now we can like actually start digging into your paper. And so well, this paper was authored by our guest Fiona and her colleague Carol Gibbs, and it's titled When Guardians Become Offenders, Understanding Guardian Capability Through the Lens of Corporate Crime. It was published in Criminology in 2022. In this article, Fiona examines the mechanisms in which offenders commit corporate financial fraud and identify the failures in guardianship. Your work highlights the guardian-offender overlap or instances where those charged with guardianship responsibilities become the motivated offenders. And to do so, you constructed a sample of firms subjected to financial reporting-related enforcement actions by the Securities and Exchange Commission and pulled qualitative data from accounting and auditing enforcement releases which include information on the details of the firm and occurrence, quarterly files, and annual files. And your final sample included 103 company cases. Is that a fair summary of your paper? 
That's an excellent summary of my paper. <laughs> I think you did better than I could. <laughs> I mean, some of that to was be honest, pulled from your paper. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, I like maybe understood. Like I could read the words. I'm not entirely sure that I completely understand what the words mean. If we're being honest, I, and we can and I can <laughs> clarify everything. And I also yeah. had to Google what an AAER was yeah. to figure out what was included in them, but. Sure. Yeah, Hopefully and, that was correct. So, and to me, SEC has always meant Southeastern Conference for college <laughs> football. So I had to stop thinking about it that way. Yes, yes. Like us business people, like to throw around acronyms a lot without thinking about who knows what. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in that world, so. All right, so we're going to kind of semi-backpedal a little because I think it's important for your paper, but getting back into routine activity theory and corporate crime, can -hmm. you tell us what opportunity structures are and then what aspects of opportunity structures and corporate crime are different from street crimes? Okay, so we talked about the three elements of routine activity theories and if we backpedal a little bit, Cohen and Felsen kind of said that, you know, let's assume that there will always be a motivated offender. So what creates an opportunity for a crime is the convergence of a suitable target as well as an absence of capable guardianship, right? And other white collars crime scholars have pointed out that, well, that doesn't always neatly applied to white-collar crime because, you know, white-collar crime doesn't really require a direct physical convergence of offenders or victims. Many white-collar offenders also have legitimate specialized access to their targets, right, because of their occupation or their position. So we tend to focus more broadly on common places such as like networks or business systems or business processes where offenders and victims come into indirect contact with each other through, you know, day-to-day legitimate business activities. And then white-collar crime scholars have also like noted that suitable target doesn't always have to be the victim or the victim's possessions or properties, right? A suitable target in white-collar crime can be a process or a specific element in a process. All right. So now we want to take these concepts and kind of start assigning roles to them or like players to these roles. And so how do these concepts relate to corporate financial accounting fraud So in other words, when it comes to accounting fraud, who or what are the offenders, who are the guardians, and what is the target? Okay. So let's start with target. We said that target doesn't have to be a victim or a victim's possession or property. In a corporate accounting environment, the targets are usually specific accounts or line items on your financial statement that offenders want to manipulate or, you know, gain access to, right? And offenders can be anyone, any employees in the organization with access to the accounting and reporting processes, with access to any organizational resources. 
And in terms of guardians, we have internal guardians and external guardians. And internal guardians work within the organization, and they generally include all levels of financial personnel and, you know, middle senior management, chief officers, and board of directors, all these personnel that are tasked with handling and recording financial transactions, tasked with preparing and reviewing financial statements, or kind of overseeing the internal controls of the organization. So external guardians would include people like independent auditors, like I was, you know, they go in and then they have their independent audit that's different from an internal audit. Right. Okay. And so related to this, how does the nature of the accounting process and the structure of guardianship as kind of we just talked about present an opportunity for financial fraud? Yeah, so if you think about the accounting structure and reporting process, so it's made up a lot of small different processes. So there are a lot of steps involved before a financial statement is issued or the financial statements are made public. And each little processes have, you know, individual personnel and guardians that make sure that the internal controls are functioning properly in each process. I don't know if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. But so when we think about accounting and reporting processes, you could think about examples like a billing department or a payroll department. There are individual employees within those departments that, you know, record your day-to-day transaction, but there are also individuals who check, make sure everything is correct, uh, make sure there are internal controls in place so that fraud cannot be perpetrated. A lot of internal controls are required by law, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of different processes and we have layers upon layers of internal controls. So we have correspondingly layers and layers of different guardians. And this layers of guardians are great, but I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but you'll see that when this layers break down, when there is an overlap of offending and offender and guardian, then this layering strategy might not work as well. Great. So based on our discussion so far, I think we're in a decent place to start jumping into your results. But before we get into like your research questions, we just want to know based off of the sample of 103 firms that you were looking at, what were some of the most common types of financial reporting violations that you found? So I think over 40% of the cases that I looked at involved earnings manipulation. So that's the most common type. And earning manipulations is usually, you know, like chief officers or senior management kind of cooking the books, right? Misrepresenting the state of financial health about the corporation. And then the next most common type of financial reporting violation we see is foreign corruption and bribery. That's another area that's pretty prevalent. So I don't know if you know the answer to this, because I'm sure it's very hard to come down to it. But just like how common is it that corporations or firms are doing these kinds of activities? 
Is there even a number you could put on it? Probably not, but I don't have a number. And this is so difficult to say, right? A lot of people think of like accounting or as a discipline where it's black and white. It's really not that. A lot of the rules and regulations surrounding financial reporting and accounting are rather loosey goosey. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of them are guidance, and a lot of them require human judgment. And so, if you think about valuation of a security, right? That requires a lot of estimation. It requires an estimation requires a lot of assumptions. So who came up with these assumptions and estimations, right? So it requires a lot of kind of discretion from the leadership of a corporation to make those decisions. It's not always black and white. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah I feel like when you describe something as loosey goosey, it <laughs> opens up the door for things to. Not go perfectly, right?、Oh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you had three research questions for this paper, and we usually like to kind of walk through them one by one, and、okay. so that's kind of how we're gonna do it. So first, you wanted to know who are the guardians and offenders in known cases of financial fraud. What was your finding for this question, and did it support your hypothesis, or did it surprise you? This one is pretty consistent with our expectations. Just the way I have described the financial reporting process or the accounting process, we know that chief officers and senior management are responsible for overseeing a lot of different processes, and so they are named as guardian more often than lower-level financial employees. That's pretty expected. I think one finding that wasn't as expected was about external guardianship. We talked about external auditors as the main kind of main form of guardianship externally, but we see in our cases that there are also financial analysts, there are prospective investors, there are external business partners that are the ones who uncover the fraud. That's interesting. And were those same people then the offenders that you found for the known cases of financial fraud? We find more within the company offenders、yeah. than we did externally. Okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah. All right. So your second research question then was whether there was this overlap between guardians and offenders, or as you called, kind of this guardian offender overlap. Did your results suggest that there was this overlap in guardian and offender roles? I think our research kind of really support this notion of offender guardian overlap. Actually, I think only twenty one percent of our cases does not exhibit、wow. this overlap. So the rest did, and the majority of the cases that experience this offender guardian overlap are perpetrated by chief officers and senior management. So they account for most of that overlap. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed when reading through your paper that was interesting to me, and you yourself point out that it was interesting to you as well, was that in many cases a guardian had actually identified a case of financial misstatement prior to the information being released to the general public, and prior to detection by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Can you tell us a little bit more about this finding? 
Yeah. And so let's backtrack a little bit about how we talked about the processes of accounting and how there are multiple guardians, right, in each process. And so there are a lot of different guardians and a lot of layers of guardianship where someone, one of them could just flag, you know, pull a red flag and say, hey, this doesn't look right. And in our cases, there are a lot of instances, I think there are in 48% of our cases, actually, where this has happened. Someone has raised a red flag and said, this doesn't look right. But because of this structure where we see chief officers and senior management are more responsible for the latter part of this process, they have a lot of control for saying that, ah, this is not an important issue, you know, let's move on. So this is something that highlights to me the potential pitfall of a guardianship overlap. If this overlap happens towards the end of the process, and if this offender happens to be at the top of the totem pole, then this power of management override really circumvents our our different layers of guardianship, regardless of how many layers we keep adding to it, right? And we can see after Enron, for example, we have the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which really beefed up kind of internal control requirements for corporations. We say that you have to have all these internal controls, these layers of internal controls. And we add a lot of layers, but if those layers can be override and then is it really effective, right? Is that a re- effective strategy? Yeah. I mean, it's like in your previous rule too, I mean, being an external, you know, guardian to all of these cases, it's like, then even if you flagged it and you were like, there's something wrong here, then the people who were, you know, perpetrating these <laughs> crimes could just be like, nope, let's ignore it and move on. Yeah, that, that's what you're saying. Yeah, a lot of yeah. times, and as an external auditor, there's also another kind of component to it, right? Like an external auditor, you are you're hired by the company, so there is some, yeah. you know, like some component of conflict of interest there, right? You don't want to anger your clients too much because you want to retain their businesses. And so there's a little bit of like negotiation going on, right? When we find fraud, we're like, hey, this, or when we find something that doesn't, you know, look, you know, right. right. And we say, hey, maybe you should, you know, change this, but then they will push back, right? You know, there's some sort of like negotiation, some sort of pushback that makes external guardians not 100% effective. Even if we did detect a fraud, it's the intervention that wasn't there, right? Yeah. So interesting. This layering process, yeah, sounds complicated and maybe not the best model that we could do moving forward. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So your final research question is perhaps the most complex as it examines how perpetrators of financial fraud 
circumvent guardian structure. So kind of starting to get a little bit into what we're just talking about. You identified five major themes that describe the mechanisms these individuals used to perpetrate and or conceal financial fraud. Can you tell us a bit about these mechanisms? Yeah. So we said that the majority of the cases where there is an offender guardian overlap as perpetrated by, you know, senior management and chief officers. And a lot of times these individuals are in a position that allow them to have a lot of say in the accounting processes and adjusting the final product, the final financial statements, right? And so one of the themes that we've identified is temporal manipulation, where there are different ways that these officers and senior management can manipulate timing of accounting in order to perpetrate the fraudulent activities that they did. So one of the things that they would do is, for example, make those year-end adjustments, right? And they're perfect to do that, to make a little bit of adjustments in the accounts where things may not be balanced and things like, so adjustments that come towards the end of the process, I would say. And another way to manipulate like the timing of things is kind of holding back something and then releasing something. A better way to say it is when, let me think. Is it kind of like, sorry, I was just going to say, is it kind of like how some police departments, at least in the news, this has come up where say like a homicide happened toward the end of the year, but they didn't want it to go to this year's count for homicide. So they waited to release it until January. Yes, that's exactly it. And (laughs) so like in business, right? Like big increases and big decreases are not favorable to investors. And so a lot of times you'll see strategies for performance smoothing. So I'll hold back some of the revenue this year because we did really well. I'll hold it back for when we did poorly and we, you know, kind of use that as like a little padding. We call that the cookie jar. You put that, put something in the cookie jar and, you know, you can take it out whenever you need to. Yeah. And those are some of the themes that you'll see in these cases where they manipulate the timing of revenue recognition when they recognize sales and revenue. Another thing they would manipulate in terms of timing is, you know, they know the operation really well, right? And so they know when, you know, auditors are the most busy. They know when would be a good time to perpetrate or to you know, to sneak in little fraudulent transactions, right? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Was that the main kind of mechanism then that you saw in the data? No, we saw actually four other mechanisms and they're all like to me pretty interesting and kind of highlight that importance of like overlap. One of the things, and I've kind of touched on that a little bit already, is about how complex accounting is that it's not often black and white, right? It involves a lot of estimation and assumptions. And people 
higher up in the totem pole has a lot of say in these estimation and assumptions, and they take advantage of that. Another thing about people in those positions and higher up positions is that they have a lot of power and they were able to, you know, dismiss a red flag being raised. They were able to override a lot of internal controls and they're able to kind of bully, you know, their employees into agreeing with what they have concluded, right? And then one last thing, or maybe two last things that we've observed is about corporate structure. A lot of times the cases that we see involve subsidiaries. So they involve a lot of really complex organizational structures. And the structures, these complex structures, they play a role in kind of obscuring information flow, right? So we call this structural secrecy in the white collar crime realm, where information flow was limited in upstream or downstream directions because of how complex an organization is. The last theme that we identified is a theme of quid pro quo with external parties. One of the main kind of way that white collar crimes are perpetrated and concealed is through kind of a superficial superficial appearance of legitimacy, right? So they would solicit help with their business partners or external like other companies where they would say, hey, if you help me make up this fake transaction, we'll help you with this other thing, right? So some sort of quid pro quo arrangement. And that way they can have a superficial appearance of legitimacy on the books. Uh, that transaction has occurred with the help of a lot of external third parties. Yeah, so interesting. Okay, so based off of your work, you found like significant guardian offender overlap. What did you say, like 80%? Yeah. In your sample. Yeah. Of the commission of corporate financial fraud. And so we're just kind of wondering, you know, based off of this work, that high percentage, kind of these mechanisms or themes that you uncovered, what are some of the implications that your work has for research policy and practice? I think it really highlights what happens when a guardian acquires the motivation to become an offender. And especially when they're very familiar with the target, right? So they can take advantage of the familiarity. And in the case of corporate financial crime, they could really take advantage of their position to perpetrate the fraud. And I think this overlap happens or might happen in a lot of different crime types other than corporate crime. Off the top of my head, I want to think about... Maybe off the top of my head, I could think about like child abuse or, you know, domestic violence type thing where the guardian could be the offender as well. And what that means to us, right, in terms of crime prevention, in terms of theory development, right? I mean, for corporate crime, I think we talked about how that layer of guardianships, that layered structure might not always 
be the most effective because of this, you know, offender guardian overlap and because of the position and the power that these offenders have. Again, I just wanted to say it was really fun and interesting reading your paper. So anyone who's not necessarily super interested in corporate crime, I highly suggest it because it was really interesting to read. Thank you. Yeah, I think a lot of my inspiration actually comes from looking at other crime type. And I think there is like a very, there's just really great opportunity for us to learn from each other from the different crime types. So this is like something that always it's at the back of my mind is when I listen to other people talk about their work and how do I apply that to corporate crime, right? And I, I think in this paper, what I'm hoping is that we can see the bigger utility of focusing on capability and focusing on potential offender guardian overlap, right, in other forms of crime. And I mean, I went to ASC, I went to a panel this past ASC, and they talked about parole probation, parole and probation decisions using machine learning. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked at how much it kind of parallels my own work in my dissertation, because I was looking at that and I was like, hey, we face the same problem, but we have completely different data. And Mm -hmm. Like, what can we learn from my data? What have they learned from their data and parole and probation decisions using machine learning? And turns out there's a lot we can learn from each other. And which is why I think it is important for us to kind of think about or take a look at other crime types and give us inspiration and yeah, things like that. Yeah. So we were actually going to ask you about, you know, kind of like this crossover and interdisciplinary work. I guess, is there more that you can say about what we can learn from each other? You talked about like machine learning, which we could probably do an entire episode and I still probably wouldn't understand what that is. (laughs) But yeah, any other benefits that you see from kind of this intermingling of what we study and how we study it? Yeah, I think a lot of times when I look at a crime, like when I look at theory, for example, right? Like when I look at theory, I always look at how a certain theory applied to corporate crime. And there's always some aspect where it applies perfectly and other aspects where it doesn't apply so neatly. And then, so a lot of corporate crime scholars have kind of like adjusted and molded previous theories to kind of, you know, adapt it to corporate crime or white collar crime in general. And I think this gives us two things. It tells us like context, right? What kind of, how generalizable that theory is. And it tells us mechanisms. When does it work? Like how does it work, right? So it tells us when and how does it work through context and mechanisms. And yeah, I think that's something that the field has moved or progressed towards, right? We're looking more into not just how a theory, whether a theory works or doesn't work, but does it also, like, how does it work and when does it work, right? Yeah, for sure. Is this work from your dissertation? Or is this something separate, the paper we talked about today? 
that's entirely different. Something else. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious. But anyway, we just want to say thank you so much again, Fiona, for joining us. Where can people find you if they have questions or comments? Is email the best? Are you on Twitter? Yeah, email is the best way to find me. And thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I always like talking. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you again. It was great having you on and wonderful to meet you. It was great being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.